This is Reinvented. I'm Chris Bordoni, and this show is about the art and science of transformation. In season one of Reinvented, we're exploring what happens when adversity strikes. From finding new sources of strength, to rethinking your identity, and far beyond. Today I speak with Allison Pullins, a healthcare executive and the mom of two small children. Allison lived one of my worst nightmares, finding out that her young child was sick and wasn't going to get better. While parts of this conversation are emotional, there's so much that we can learn from Allison about empathy, courage, unconditional love, and parenting. This is Allison's story. Yeah. So it was a little bit earlier than June when we we knew that something was wrong with James. He had always had very terrible vision, which we actually found out when he was an infant. He was only about 18 months old when he first got glasses. And he had gotten to the age by the summer of 2018 that we could do more vision tests at his literally quarterly appointments at at the ophthalmologist um, to determine what it was that was actually causing James's very high myopia. And um, after a lot of tests, which he was so cute for, like, you know, looking at pictures, telling the technician what they were, laughing, just, you know, James is always um, such a focused and concentrated child, even even as an infant. And um, it was just, you know, you could, you could see his little personality emerging. I remember the appointment just feeling fine. And our, our ophthalmologist, whom I adore, um, came in and said, look, um, I've determined that it's not the axial length of his eye. Basically, the eyeball um, in myopia can get kind of long, more like an egg than a sphere. And um, it's not that. Uh, it's his lenses. And this is not common. It is most of the time associated with the, with genetic conditions. But, you know, frankly, looking at your son, I, I wouldn't worry. Don't worry. Um, just go check it out. And the way she delivered things, I wasn't panicked at all, but I was like, I'm going to do a little bit of research. And the first, oddly enough, the first genetic condition I found was something that made no sense. You know, a lot of cognitive issues and James was quite bright. And I thought, oh, I'm sure it's, you know, whatever. Um, so we ended up, um, we ended up calling genetics, which before they, um, could refer, refer us, we had to go get an echocardiogram, um, which leads me to June of 2018. And I remember that when I, when I called in, they said, oh, this is a Marfan consult. And I, I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, right, Marfan syndrome, which I knew about because I had a colleague whose mother and brother, but not herself, uh, had the condition. And I kind of looked at my son after that phone call and I thought, no, this kind of makes sense. Like James looks like he has Marfan syndrome. He's got these long arms, these hands, like my husband and I, like my husband, you know, standing on his tippy toes is barely five, six. And James was always a very tall kid. 
Um, so we went to um, we went to go get that echo, and the cardiologist, you know, took one look at him and said, "Nah, I think your kid definitely has Marfan syndrome." But you know, let's go get this echo. Just one question for you, Allison. I mean, so a doctor offhandedly says, "Like, I think it's Marfan syndrome," or like, "I'm pretty sure it's Marfan." And I know at that point you're familiar with what that means, at least at some level. But like, what yeah. was your reaction to that? What was your reaction to a doctor just saying like, oh, yeah, I think it's this? I knew it in my gut. I knew it in my gut. You know, I um, I had just, I, I, oh, you're a dad. You've spent so much time looking at your daughter. You know, I, I have spent countless hours staring at my son. I know him. I know him. Mm-hmm. And I... I knew this. And in fact, uh, before the appointment, I'd had a conversation with my dad, who um, is actually a retired pathologist. And my dad is like an encyclopedia of human diagnosis and disease. And my dad, when I told him, I was like, Dad, I, I think James probably has Marfan syndrome. My dad said, you know, I think that's probably true. Let's just hope that it's not that bad. Um, And, and that's, that's, so when, so when our cardiologist said that before we had the echocardiogram, I I didn't, I didn't feel much. I, I, if anything, I felt kind of a sense of like maybe being right. I know that sounds terrible, but I was like, you know, aha, um, he, I'm not the only one that thinks this to be the case. Um, but we hadn't had the echo yet, and we we didn't know how bad it was. Let me jump in with a, a quick primer on Marfan syndrome. So Marfan is a genetic condition that weakens the body's connective tissue. And as you remember may remember from your biology classes, connective tissue is everywhere in the body. But as you might imagine, there's a couple of places where it's especially critical, and one of those is the heart. And so one of the primary concerns with people who have Marfan syndrome is that their aorta will grow so large and so weak, they can actually rip apart, which is almost always fatal. And as you might imagine, is incredibly painful. Okay, back to Allison. Which brings me back to the the echo room. Um, so we we got the echo, and um, the car- the cardiologist came in the room and he said, he just looked me straight in the eye and he's like, um, "There's aortic uh, enlargement and it's it's not good." Um, and I I just before he even said it's not good. I just, I, I just started crying. And thankfully James was, you know, he was watching TV, very engaged, like in front of me and just tears started streaming down my face. And he, and he said, look, you know, um, in, in the grand scheme of things, when we're looking at, uh, aortic enlargement in children, we measure it by the Z score. So how many standard deviations above the mean are we talking about? Um, and James's Z score at the time was about a six. Um, and for those wow. of you that don't know statistics, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, it's massive. I mean, he, this he was almost his aorta was almost three centimeters big. He was three years old. My aorta, um, as a adult female, five three is probably about three and a half. Um, so it was big and I, I knew enough. 
to know the implications of this. Yeah, that's got to be that's got to be so incredibly difficult to to hear that and to also know what that means and to have to process that in a moment. It was um I was I was devastated. I was I was just devastated. And I, you know, it was like my brain almost shut off. Um it was which is I mean disassociation is is so common. I I kept having to tell myself, "Allison, you're here. This is happening. You're here. This is happening." Cuz it felt like I was outside of my body and I was almost in a dreamlike state. Yeah. Yeah. I f- that's unbelievable. Um, I mean, I, I was going to say earlier, you know, it seems fortunate that you had like an inkling or you had a sense and you had those conversations and you sort of were prepared, but in hearing you talk about it, I don't know how you ever could be prepared for what you, what you heard that day. You can't, you just can't. I, um, I, I certainly had been playing the scenario in my mind. Oh, what if, you know, James has this life-threatening genetic condition? Um, but I hadn't allowed myself to really go there because why? I mean, you know, it, I didn't know. I didn't know for sure. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I did know now. And it, it was, it was funny because Chris, cause like, the cardiologist, he was kind of old school and he's like, I can clinically diagnose your kid right now with this aortic enlargement, the lens dislocation, your son's like, you know, skeletal presentation. But I have, um, I've called genetics. I got you appointment at three 30 today. Um, you, you need to know, I know that you, he, he, bless this man. He, um, looked at me and Neil and he was like, you two remind me of my kids. And if my kids were going through this right now, this is what I would want for them. I mean, the humanity of this man. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I've had a lot of experiences with doctors, uh, professionally, personally. And, um, he, you know, it is not always the case that you work with a clinician like this and he just got it done. Um, you know, Neil and I, after we had this news, you know, we had our son, you know, who was almost three, we had, you know, we had my infant daughter in tow. She was like nine months old at the time. And, oh my God, like Naomi was such a cute baby. She was like super chunky, really smiley, like you know, you walk into a room and Naomi would immediately light it up, you know? And so I had these two kids, um, Neil and I felt like we had just gotten our, our chests ripped open and we had to just play it cool. Like we just had to be normal. Right. And so we went, we got sushi, um, ironically at the restaurant where Neil and I went after we eloped at San Francisco city hall. So it's like, it was like this restaurant where this book ends of like happiest day of our lives, yeah. saddest day of our lives, you know? And, um, I remember going to a park and it overlooks downtown, um, as before we, we, as we were waiting for the appointment and, and sitting on the swing and swinging, um, and just, just swinging 
you know, like a kid. And we, we ended up going to the appointment and I remember him saying, you know, I don't know who you know, but I've got a six month waiting list. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, we get things done. And yeah. we got the genetic confirmation back two weeks later, but like, honestly, the diagnosis didn't even matter to me at that point. Cause it was, you know, like it was in his body, like his aorta was huge. You know, it didn't matter if it was Marfan syndrome or Lois Dietz, like it, it was there. I didn't necessarily need a name for it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I want to, I want to ask you about is like, I, I've had some conversations with other people and I even think about my own experience to some extent. And sometimes you go through something that's really, really difficult, but you know that it has an end point. Like, you know, that if you survive, it'll be okay. And it, it's not hanging over your shoulder. Or, you know, that like every day you'll get a little bit stronger and that process might be horrible and miserable, but you can see progress over time and you can sort of, you can feel that way. But when I, when I try to put myself in your shoes and think about hearing this message, it's different than that, right? Because you're, you, you have all this uncertainty and you don't know what it means. And you're sort of staring out into a future that looks totally different than what it did that morning or a week ago, a month ago, whatever it is. And so I guess I'm curious in the, you know, from that day forward, how did you think about, I guess what you'd learned, how did you think about living your life and, and, and where do you find the strength in that moment to say, I'm going to get through this, or I'm, I'm going to allow this to be whatever it is. How do you deal with that part? Such a good question. Uh, and a really important point. Um, when, when we got this diagnosis, uh, I had to face the fact that it would only get worse it would only get worse. That is, that is the, um, this is the painful thing about chronic disease is, um, it's not always acute, right? You don't go through this really intense episode where you're very, very ill and, you know, you recover or you don't, and, you know, you don't more or less move on, but, you know, you're in this phase of you're in calm seas, um, you don't get it with this. And when I was in the initial stages of my grief of realizing this, um, I figured out pretty quickly that I had to profoundly be okay with that. I had to accept the fact that I am a mom of a sick kid who's not going to get better. And, um, it, it was a radical, radical acceptance. It was radical. Um, I, and the journey was very difficult. You know, the, the first year after James's diagnosis, um, was a very dark time for me and my husband, you know, and, and why, quite frankly, for everybody, you know, I, um, I think of, of our parents, you know, uh, who not only had had uh, their grandchild's life changed, but their children, me and Neil, we we were we were we were in a lot of pain. We were in a lot of pain, and um, but here's the thing, Chris. Um, you've got to when you're faced with this kind of grief, with this kind of loss, the only way through it 
is through it. You just, you got it. You got to walk through the fire. You've got to walk through the fire. And I had to um, accept the fact that I, whenever I look my kid in the face, I know he is sick and I know this could kill him. And um, it, it, it's terrible. Like it, it sucks. Um, However, however, I had never felt that that side of unconditional love where you don't just love the person because you love them. You accept that they are non-permanent, just like you are, just like everything is. And that added this richness and frankly, beauty to how I loved my kids and, and how I love people in my life. Um, I, I knew, I knew it so much. I could see the non-permanence of, of this life so much more clear. And it made me, this may sound weird, but it like, really, it inspired me. Like I was like, there is this beautiful edge that I haven't felt before. I don't even, to be honest, this is, I don't even know how to react. Like I'm, I'm really choked up listening to you talk about this, but I'm also hearing you talk about something that's like so incredibly beautiful and such a gift, I think, to realize because like, as I'm thinking about it, like our lives are like that, right? We just, we just don't admit it. We don't acknowledge it. We don't recognize the impermanence. And I I can't imagine having to go through this and how difficult that must be and how, challenging that must be like as a parent I think one of the things that parents share right is just the like the dread or the fear or just the helplessness of when things happen to your kids big or small but as I hear you talking about this like and I I also know that feeling of what you're talking about to some extent and just the the beauty of like having a different perspective on the world and seeing that this is impermanent and that can open up some possibilities for you to live your life in a different way and to be so much more appreciative and just live uh, with so much more, I think, gratitude for what you do have and, and for however long you do have it. But I've got to imagine that sort of like holding the, that tension, like trying to hold that beautiful thing, but also the realities of like having to wake up every morning and deal with it is is probably really difficult to reconcile. It it can be. And look, I tip in, in, the, in the other direction sometimes. I mean, like it, it is definitely a balance. You know, I spoke of an edge. I, I feel like I'm always standing on the edge. But the thing is, like this realization and this experience, it's my superpower. I, I can face the, I have so much more courage and bravery than I ever realized I had. I, I have so much like to be able to look at my kid and tell him, yeah, you're, you're going to have surgery one day and to see him fall apart and be okay with that and not try to fix him or it. Cause I can't, but just to be with him and say, look, I know that's scary. I'm scared too. And I love you. And I'm your mom. And, you know, I think like that's all all of us can do. And it's really it's shifted my perspective in 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 kind of truth telling. You know, I I think there's a couple different approaches when, you know, parents sometimes 
I don't want to say they lie to their kids, although some people do, but they, they, they don't, they're not honest, you know, they mm-hmm. don't, they don't, they don't reveal what's happening to kids, even in an age appropriate way. And I realized pretty early on, like, okay, so my job as a mom is I've got pressure now because I need to raise a child who one is responsible, takes his medications, goes to all of his doctor's appointments, understands the severity of his condition, right? And I also have to raise a really resilient child, a child that's going to face surgery before he's an adult. And um, these surgeries, by the way, are really, they're, they're terrifying. They're terrifying. Um, he's going to have to face that. And I have, me and his dad, we have to give him the tools and the ability to, to live with that and to manage it. Um, so I feel like when I wake up in the morning, yeah, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm sad and all these things. And I also know I, every single day is an opportunity to teach my kids to be more resilient, to have compassion, um, because they are going to need it. They're going to need it. And it's not just James, my daughter, um, it is going to be a tough road for her. She, uh, she loves her brother more than anybody, anybody. And um, it is going to be very difficult for her to watch him be in pain and to live with the knowledge that her very best friend of the world could die. And um, I want to, I want to teach her to live with that, but also to, to not, to not feel responsible for that. Cause I, I think that that, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of siblings who I've seen a lot of people who have siblings that are sick or have disabilities. Um, and it's fundamentally changed them in good ways and in bad. And I, I know that's coming for Naomi. This is something that affects our entire family. You know, the things you're talking about, I mean, they're, I think for any, any kid or for any parent, they, they're, you know, things like kindness and resilience, like those are the things that are top of mind for us. And we're trying to figure out, and I think we have questions about how do you do it and what does it look like? Right. Um, how do you think about that with your kids, especially given how young they are and starting to teach some of those values? That's a great question. Every moment's a teaching moment. Um, and we've had a lot of teaching moments in 2020, like, let's be real. Um, you know, when, when coronavirus happened, we were very truthful with our kids and said, look, there's this virus, um, that makes people sick. And, you know, most kids don't get very sick. Um, but older people, people like Gangi and Pop-Pop and Mimi, like they could get very sick. Um, and it's really important that we stay away from people. We wash our hands. Cause like you, it, you're not gonna get very sick, but the thing is that you could give it to other people. So it's our responsibility to be aware because other people could get, could get really sick. Right. And so that's teaching a kid, look, it's not always about you. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, it's you, you have a role in our society and it's really important that we all stick together. Right. Another, um, another huge teaching moment was when George Floyd was murdered this year, you know, gosh, and countless other black Americans, um, by the police. And, um, you know, so many conversations were happening across the country and, we had talked about race in our family and racism, but we'd never talked about white supremacy. So I, we sat James down and I said, look, you know, there are people out there that think that white people are better than black and brown people. How do you, what do you think about that? And I remember James like looking at me and saying, it's bad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and he like do. He's like it's it's bad. It yeah, it's bad. Um and you know, I think like I think taking mo- as a parent, you are constantly faced with opportunities and challenges for growth. You just one have to be on the lookout for them and two not be too exhausted not to respond, right? Yeah. And I think like this parenting muscle, the first two years of my kid's life, I was like, what is happening? I like, I was very reactive. I was not very thoughtful. Um, and then something clicked in me. I was like, oh, parenting, I get this. Like I can, I could be quick on the uptake. Um, I could in the moment, address challenges and issues that came up with my kids, but oh my gosh, it took me years. Like it it literally took me years. And so my, you know, Neil and I's whole kind of parenting outlook, and we're, we're pretty chill parents is, um, take moments and opportunities as they come. And over time, those moments that you teach your kids, um, where I, there's something happens in the news or something happens at school and show them right and wrong. And that's, yeah. that's basically how we've done it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's one of the things I'm, I'm not as far along. My daughter's two and a half. And, you know, just one of the things I'm realizing is that like, it's, it's, it's the little things and doing them right that add up over time, it seems, um, and, and can have a profound impact. So it's like, it's, you know, it's leading by example, which is always hard to do, but they're always watching, they're always absorbing it. And then I think it's exactly what you're talking about of just finding a way to be present, finding a way to say, okay, this is a moment where like, I need to step in, I need to say something, or I need to be more yeah. sensitive and recognize what's going on and, and adjust, um, and do more or do less of something. And like, those two things don't sound that difficult, but in practice, it's, it's exactly, you know, as you mentioned, like you need to be not so tired, so frustrated, so distracted and all of those things that you can actually do it. Um, but it's, it's interesting hearing your perspective. Um, cause I definitely empathize with the part of like figuring it out and, and evolving and feeling like you're getting better, but, but sure feeling like on a lot of days you have a lot more room for improvement. Yeah. And look like the, the being present thing, um, and in living in the moment is, I think one of our, <laughs> we've got these gigantic brains that can think of the the past and the future. And it's really like to our detriment a lot of the time. And so I think really having this, this transformational experience with James's diagnosis and me realizing well, like, really all I have is this present moment with my, with my child, um, 
help my parenting because I could bring that kind of focus and concentration and really look at my children and be able to respond to them. And it's hard. Um, but over time you, you get better at it. Yeah. Do you find like looking at your own life over the last two years, do you find that some of your, like your habits, your behaviors, have have any of those things changed or even like things at work or things in your relationships? Like, have there been other things you've noticed when you step back where it's like, wow, I'm, I'm living my life in a different way than I was before? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I had done a pretty decent job of taking care of myself or self-care as they call it these days. Um, but after James's diagnosis, I, I realized that I needed to be a lot more regimented about it. I've, I've always loved moving my body. I was a dancer as a, I'm, I'm a terrible athlete. I'll just put it out there, but I've always loved moving my body. And so after James's diagnosis about maybe four or five months, I, I had, I had bought a in-home spin bike a year before, but it wasn't until about four or five months after James's diagnosis that I was like, I got to get on this thing every day. Like I got to, I got to exercise. I got to sweat every day. And so I became really devoted to that ritual. I also started waking up well before my family because I needed time in the morning to just get myself together um, and be completely prepared so that when my kids did tumble down the stairs, I could greet them genuinely happy and not cranky because I hadn't had my coffee yet. So I, I made those small tweaks. Now, when it comes to professionally. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I look, I, my prioritization after my son's diagnosis completely shifted. I, I have always been one of the, you know, get things done types. My to-do list is, you know, I, uh, I write it down. I cross them off, you know, it just, I went to another level. Because for me, I was like, every moment that I'm not spending with my kid is I better be putting in my A game because otherwise it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And so my, my perspectives at work, I, I started doing things that made me happier, like coaching my team and fewer things that didn't make me happy at work delegated other stuff and really focused on what would bring me the most joy, but also not just that things that would be most effective with my time. Um, so the prioritization and the shifting, um, and also just leaving work at work. Oh my gosh. If something happened at work that didn't go my way, or I got into a conflict with a colleague, I would just ruminate and stew over that for a really long time. And I'm not saying I I've stopped doing that. (laughs) I'm not perfect. Um, but I'm not doing it as much. And when I'm doing it, I'm aware that I'm doing it, um, which is huge. And then lastly, um, my relationships, um, I mean, my relationships have, have changed so much. I I actually, um, I want to tell you about a friend of mine. Um, I, she was an acquaintance before James's diagnosis. Um, we, James went to a new daycare 
in July, August of 2017. I was, I was very, I was in my third trimester with Naomi. Um, I was commuting to work. James, uh, Neil, my husband was taking James to school and picking him up. I didn't really know a lot of people at the daycare yet. A boy in the school um, was a good friend of James and his, um, his little sister, his, his infant sister died after a, a, a brief, but very acute illness. And, um, I, you know, I, I think I, in this process after James's diagnosis, I discovered some ugly things about myself and, um, you know, we went, we, and this is one of those things, you know, we went to the service. Um, it was, it was important to us to show up. Um, it was important that James, uh, uh, know about this and be told the truth, but I gotta be honest. I was, I was afraid of her and her husband. I, whenever we saw them in the neighborhood, I didn't know what to say. Um, I didn't know how they lived with this tremendous loss. Like how, how do you go on after losing your baby? I, mm-hmm. um, I, I just, I, I couldn't, it was, it was pain. It was painful to think about that. And after James's diagnosis, I felt so isolated, Chris. I I felt so isolated. And it wasn't just because I was going through this thing. It's because people, I know people were interacting with me and thinking, I don't know how she's dealing with this. I don't, yeah. do I talk about it? Do I bring it up? Like, she, oh, I, I pity her. I felt the pity from people. And that's, and that's what I realized. That's what I had been doing with this acquaintance. And I, and she was during, after I was emerging from some of the darkest days of uh, really accepting this condition, I reached out to her and I said, look, I, you know, I know we don't know each other very well, but you're the only person I can talk to about this. Like you're the only person that I think can, I think gets it. And our circumstances are different. Um, they're very different. Uh, but she immediately met me where I was and said, I'm here, I'm here to listen and I get it. And I get how lonely you are. And this relationship has evolved over time, um, and has been absolutely crucial for me. Um, in terms of both support, but also commiseration, just understanding somebody who has faced the death of their child. Um, having somebody like that in my life is, I am so grateful for it. Um, you know, that, and before I wasn't brave enough, I wasn't strong enough to go there. Um, and I, I'm sad about that. And I, I, I recognize that that's not the kind of person I want to be. Um, but I had this opportunity, I have this opportunity in the shifted perspective to really dig into people's tragedies and be there for them. Like truly in a way that I just could not be before. Yeah. I mean, 
in hearing you talk, I mean, it's it's beautiful listening to your story, and obviously, it's born out of out of hardship and and difficulty. But <clears throat> the growth that I'm hearing is is amazing, and is I don't know, as someone who I think also really values growth, it's it's something that I I see and I hear, and it makes me like it fills me with joy to hear that you're you're finding those parts of this experience. Um, but what I but what I'm wondering or what I'm curious about is like if it weren't for James's diagnosis, do you think that you would have, you think you could have gotten there? Do you think you, we could be having the same conversation in 10 years about how you've changed and how you're, you know, having this conversation with an acquaintance and how you're able to sit and feel their, feel their pain and share things with them? Or in your mind, is it, is it only through sort of these really awful things that that type of growth, this level of growth is possible? You know, my, um, gosh, I, this is pure skepticism on my part. I like to think that over time I would have gotten there because look, loss, I mean, it's, (laughs) I've said this before, if you haven't lost something important to you, don't worry, it's coming, right? Like we, this is the human condition. I like to think that I would have learned this lesson, um, but maybe I wouldn't. You know, maybe I wouldn't. And, you know, I um, I know people that have gone through trauma and been like, what if this wouldn't have happened to me? Like, how, you know, how would we be different, whatever? And like, I like, I don't play that game. Honestly, like, I don't I don't even go there. I have made it kind of part of my whole radical acceptance is like, look, it's happening. I, I can't, I am not gonna, I am not for one second going to close my eyes. Um, yeah, I think, I think you can reach, uh, higher states of consciousness and enlightenment. If you want to use a more religious term without necessarily having gone through some sort of, you know, earthquaking event. But the truth of the matter is human beings, we're going to go through it. And you, you have a choice. Like when, when horrible things happen to you, when you lose someone or something dear, or, you know, your own life is threatened by an illness or an accident, um, you have, I think you have two choices. You can either (laughs) pretend that it's not happening and not deal with it, you know, shove it in the drawer, or you can deal with it. And the people that choose to deal with it, if you allow the situation, if you lean into the suck, to borrow Sheryl Sandberg's phrase, if you lean into the suck, um, you will be transformed. Last last question I want to ask you is related to this. Um, so I, I completely agree with you that, you know, it's it's not a question of if, it's more a question of when. Like in some way, shape or form, we'll all be tested. Um, and if it's not us, it'll be someone that we care about. Um, it'll be a coworker, a colleague, it'll be someone, right? And and so this is just part of life. And I think that that's, that's challenging in some ways, but it also presents these really beautiful moments and opportunities um, to, to grow, to change, to do the things that maybe you wouldn't otherwise do. As I'm, as I'm thinking about this, and for other people who are going you know, to be thinking about their own lives or thinking about people in their lives, um, are, there, are there any resources? Are there books? I know you're an avid reader, um, or there, are there, you know, practices, meditation, things like that, that you would encourage other people to experiment with on the thinking that it'll help you someday. It'll help you to prepare for something that might be be coming in the future. Or perhaps if you're living through it right now, here's something that I found really helpful and, you know, you might find it helpful too. Yeah. I, um, I came into this, Chris, 
starts with a very strong yoga practice that I had um, built since my early 20s. So I had a foundation of mindfulness, both, you know, in the body and inside my own head um, that really served as a, it served as a great starting point for me. Um, one of the interesting um, kind of repercussions of, of James's um, diagnosis was I really questioned my purpose in life. What, it, why am I here? And I questioned it because suddenly I knew, I knew that my purpose in life was to, to be the head of this family. And I, I dove into that and I leaned into that um, yoga practice, which led me to more serious study, um, not only of mindfulness meditation, but in Buddhism more broadly. And I think like some of the most important things I've read have been basically anything by Thich Nhat Hanh. He's brilliant. Um, it, he really distills down um, the Buddhist philosophy um, of non-attachment of the human condition um, so well. I also love um, Tara Branch and her work. Um, you know, I mentioned radical acceptance a couple of times and that, that concept really helped me cope um, with, with our, our situation. Um, and lastly, I think um, Philip Moffat is, um, he's, is he one of the founders of Spirit Rock? Oh, I forget, Jack Cornfield. Oh my gosh, he's, I've seen him speak in person at Spirit Rock. He is amazing. His podcast is great. Um, him and Philip Moffat just, just write about applying principles of mindfulness to your daily life. And, you know, I'm, I'll be real with you. Like, I, like, my meditation is, is not very, it's not a great practice. It's inconsistent. I can barely sit for 25, 30 minutes before I get antsy. But I really, I translate those principles primarily into my parenting and to interactions with other people. And so um, I think some of this, this research um, and spiritual development, um, if, you know, if listeners um, are curious, like, I think it was really important to me to, you know, not only accept the situation and to accept James's diagnosis and the impermanence of his life and frankly, everyone else's, um, it's it's really helped me grow and it's given me that foundation. And it, in my dark moments, I can go back to those teachings, better understand how my monkey mind works and ways that I cannot cure myself by any means, but ways that I can live um, with all of the challenges that uh, life has presented me. Yeah. Allison, thank you so much. This has been a, a really beautiful conversation. I'm so thankful that you came on and shared your story and I wish you and your family all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much for checking out this episode. If this was your first time listening to Reinvented, be sure to click the subscribe button now. If you've been enjoying the show for a while, don't forget to leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone that would love this episode, take a moment to spread the word. Thanks again. And I'll see you next time.